0: Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh.
1: I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures.
2: Role-playing inspiration can come from anywhere, and we use our side quest to explore TV shows, movies, books, and other RPGs that influence our playstyle and storytelling. Whether we draw from intriguing plot points, amazing characters, or, well, you know, just kind of geek out about it, it should be a fun trip and we're glad you came along for the ride.
0: word from today's sponsor. Lost in the woods?
2: Come on, honey. Let's go this way.
0: You don't know what to do.
2: I, I don't know where to look. I, I just, I don't know what to do. You feel your sanity slowly strip away as you listen to one more children's song.
0: La, 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 no, la, la, no, I can't. La, I, I just can't take it. La, la, I can't listen la, to it again. I can't la, listen no. to it again. Please, what? please, what? no!
1: <laughs> <laughs> please. <laughs> 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 Look, Dad,
3: it's Fun Time with Mr. Dave. What? Oh, you're right.
2: Look, there it is. Oh, it's right there at Fun Time with Mr. Dave. dot com. I'm, I, I'm saved. I'm saved. (laughs) Fun time with Mr. Dave. Saving parents' sanity since 2020.
0: Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. I feel like, again, we say this every single time that we get together, but we are super excited about today's side quest. We have another guest in with us today. Uh, I'd like to introduce all of our listeners to uh, Travis Legg, who is a freelance uh, tabletop RPG writer and the line dev for Scarred Lands, which is, which just uh, finished a Kickstarter within the last couple of months that was hugely successful. I'm very excited. Uh, I've got part of it already and I'm, Can't wait till I get get my books. But uh Travis, uh welcome to Tabletop Journeys. Why don't you introduce yourself? Thank you so much for having me. Yeah,
3: it's uh great to be here. I am uh I am all the things you said and uh sometimes more than that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) aren't we all right? (laughs) Indeed, it's true. Yeah, uh so I've been working on um working on role-playing games now, off and on for about 18 or 19 years, probably. Wow. And I just, I got involved with Scarlands. oh God, probably about three years now at this point on an official level. And uh yeah, I've just, I've, it's been a blast. I've loved the setting since it first came out in, what was it, 2001, 2002? I'm terrible at dates. Yeah, it's been um, like 20
0: years. guardlands has been on the market yeah. for like 20 years, something like that. So
3: Yeah, funny story about the genesis of Scarlands. When it initially came out, Wizards of the Coast had just done the first iteration of the open game license, and they released a player's handbook and a Dungeon Master's Guide, and then there was like an eight-month lag between that and the monster manual. There were some monsters in the back of the player's handbook, but there really weren't a lot of creatures. And so uh, the folks at the time, White Wolf, uh, so we're talking like, you know, uh, a um... Steve Wick, Rich Thomas, who's now the operator, owner, founder of Onyx Path Publishing. Those cats got together and were like, we can beat them to market for a monster manual if we really buckle down. White Wolf in the late 90s, they were no slouch. They had a lot going on, you know, Werewolf Apocalypse, The Ascension, Grand the Masquerade all that stuff. Uh, but to hear the war stories of that initial thing, they basically shut everything down and were just like cranking on that creature collection, the first lands book for a couple months. And they did, they got it out the door and they beat Wizards of the Coast to press. And they have the first monster collection for uh, Dungeons and Dragons third edition in that there was a various lore that had sort of been peppered through, um, which most of it, I believe, was actually just kind of drawn from the, home games uh that the wick brothers and uh rich had been running on their own they sort of built a world out of that and so starland sort of came together it was one of my favorite analogies for working in this business in general but particularly for starlands is throwing yourself off of a cliff and building a plane on the way down (laughs) (laughs) and that's kind of the setting initially came together as my understanding of it that's so brilliant yeah, I was a, I was a huge fan of it, uh, just uh, as a as a as a fan as a player. And right around that time, I was working on my first game, which is an urban fantasy setting called Contagion, and that was set like in the modern era, and uh, you know, very kind of like almost like supernatural. The TV show, that kind of a vibe to it. But I remember we shamelessly stole the open game content from the original creature collection and reskinned them for our monsters um (laughs) so that was my initial uh interaction skyline so in one sense i've been poking around in the setting since inception but uh only officially got the job a couple years ago Um, cool so Yeah. yeah it's fun i love it it's probably my favorite dungeons and dragons uh setting
0: yeah so I think we're going to dive into some of the influences I think that we see in in Scarred Lands here in a minute. But yeah. uh, I know that our uh, our fans have heard us say this probably a hundred times. But Lee Wanika and I actually met a at a VTM LARP uh, in the late nineties. We won't we won't say how uh, how into the nineties that was. But,
1: uh, it was uh, not late enough it was, into the nineties. Not late it was enough. enough. <laughs> exactly. Ninety four <laughs> is not the late nineties. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Uh, Are uh, you sure about that, Jeff? I mean, I... <laughs> I'm sitting here and I really need that to be enough. <laughs>
0: um, but uh, uh, we have we have mad love in our heart for uh, for those old third edition uh, White Wolf games. Uh, oh, yeah, you know, sure. I mean, I was I was running a Werewolf the Apocalypse game out of the old third edition books until about five years ago. So uh, that's th- those games are very are very near and dear to our hearts um, and very much kind of uh, inform the way that we. The lessons that we kind of learned from running and from playing in those games um, has very much uh, informed the way that we run tabletop games now. Um, just because of the uh, the physicality of those live action rules and the way that you could navig- that you had to navigate through a story as a as a storyteller and everything like that. So, um, so yeah. it's great to go ahead and hear that connection to this. I mean, that's really uh, that's that's something that uh, again is very important to us. Yeah, it's
3: a trip and it, one of the things just being a gamer at that time, this is really gonna, I'm gonna start you know making us all sound like old codgers. <laughs> but um, I don't think people now like during the current, specifically the current fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons sort of Renaissance, right. Um, I don't think people who have come to the tabletop hobby in the last five years really understand, how much of a watershed moment vampire the masquerade was for tabletop because it was really the first game that hit the mainstream that put an emphasis on role-playing as opposed to kicking in you know doors and stealing monsters loot um and that i think has informed a whole generation of designers now uh who are uh you know, now working in the space and creating these things and and exploring those techniques. But really a lot of that got brought to the mainstream consciousness of the hobby through White Wolf.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. I absolutely agree. And uh, I've said it time and time again on on the, on this podcast and I will continue to say, I love background and backstory and just hearing the origins of this game and where you came in first in contact and got in contact with the game lights up, my mind like it's everything Like Josh said that's where we met we cut Our teeth literally on um, Vampire um, But uh you see what I did there Glenn
2: yuck yuck yuck
0: <laughs> The jokes don't get any better
1: either like. yeah, yeah no the, yeah this This no. is The start
2: that one really bit
1: <laughs> Yeah I oh, bet Oh goodness so uh You know uh I think it's amazing That that's kind of where this starts from And and interestingly enough I agree with you. I think it was a watershed moment. Uh, I would take it so far as to say is all the things that people most remember about games today, even in the combats, even in the other elements of the game are the role play that made the combat cool. Like, oh, absolutely. It's, what, yeah. it's absolutely what you remember. And I think what white wolf did in the day and what seems to be a part of the best games that we're playing Regardless, system agnostic, the best games we play today are either run as or designed for the concept that if you stripped away the combat, would this still be fun? Right.
3: Absolutely. And and yeah, and that just was not the design, the prevailing design philosophy at the time. It just wasn't, you know. And and there are other games that one can point to and say, well, they pulled some DNA from here, there, and the other, you know. You got Shadowrun, I think, I presented it a little Shadow bit. Run, yeah. Um, things like that, but even those though leaned pretty heavily on. It was kind of like combat exercise plus, you know what I mean? And, and it really didn't put the the storytelling
1: in the front seat. I don't think until the World of Darkness came along. <laughs> I, I think of games like the Palladium system that tried, but they were so crunchy on the mechanics, it was hard to see the support for the role play part of it. For it's sure. almost like like the background and the story within all those books got there, but nothing within the actual game design supported that. And right. the, <laughs> and, and that's where I think White Wolf to, blew the doors out of everybody and oh, said, and, Everything we do supports the role play. Absolutely. Everything else is secondary. You absolutely.
3: Uh-huh. And and I say this with nothing but love in my heart for Kevin Siambata and for uh Palladium, particularly Riffs. I'm a huge fan, but holy crap. The only encouragement you get to role play in that world is is that you have you want to uh, explore a character that you spent nine months and did long division to build.
1: Um, yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? yeah. um, at some point our podcast is gonna start getting into some uh, side quests with uh, various Palladium games, like playing a dead rain game now. Uh, I have run many Rifts games. Glenn has run Rifts games. It is uh, very close to our heart. It's a great game. Broken. But it it is broken, and it is hard to get new players in. It is a steep hill to climb to get new players in. And that's a challenge with very crunchy games. Well, they're great for us old dogs uh, on that level that's like, oh, we can do some stuff with the numbers. If right. You don't have that strong role play background. It just gets old quick. Absolutely. And I don't know if you've uh, checked out
3: yet, but we actually um, on on my my because I do uh, streaming. I coordinate the programming for the Onyx Path Twitch, and I do some streams on there. But I also have my own Twitch channel where we do actual plays. Mm. And uh, we took a break from. Uh, our regular stories and just kind of played around with a few new games. Cause I wanted to try them out. Like we did the, um, the cortex release that they're doing for uh, dragon prince. We got to play that one shot, which was super fun. Uh, but they have done a savage worlds rifts. Uh, P- uh, Pinnacle has licensed the rift setting and ported it to the savage world system. And it is a beautiful, if you've not checked it out, it's a beautiful marriage of the really cool, um, setting stuff that's in riffs because the setting is bonkers i love it um you know that's what you, draws
2: me to it every time is how open it is anything right. is possible
3: right you can play like uh, like a circa 1970s revolutionary or circa 1770s you know revolutionary war veteran who's riding the back of a dinosaur while you're carrying like a, a plasma cannon and that's right. a perfectly <laughs> legit character
2: concept for riffs um, and, and that's how I sold a group on it was <laughs> you pick anything. Your favorite show character ever. You want to be Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter.
3: Right. I yeah, can make is, that happen. This is the game for you. But they've, they've ported it over to Savage Worlds and it works. Really. Well. It, it was a surprisingly adept port. When I heard that it happened, I was like, there's no way that's nowhere. work. Um, then I'd love to check it out. It's really good. I highly recommend it. Definitely. I mean, it it's worth no it's matter, worth matter what
2: you do when you're trying to take a fighter aircraft that could move at Mach 5 and a guy on horseback and merge them into the same combat, you're going to struggle. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So, let's go ahead and uh, and dive in here a little bit. So, uh, Travis, I want to start talking about uh, first kind of the the latest Kickstarter campaign uh, for Scarred Lands. Uh, and and uh, I want to Oh, give you the Florida gloss a little bit here. So that Kickstarter was tremendously successful, uh, over a thousand backers and something like six or seven times your goal. What was that like? How many Kickstarters has, has Scarlet Lands done? And how did this one compare to other ones that uh, that the platform has done? So Scarlet Lands only done
3: three Kickstarters, if memory serves me correctly. And I've actually only been directly involved with this last one okay um so there was a bit of terror
0: <laughs> I can imagine yeah
3: I had the softened blow of I also uh, do some development on uh, mage of the Ascension 20th anniversary edition um, and I had finished the Kickstarter for uh, technocracy reloaded prior to this so I had that success, which was wildly successful because and I would love to take credit for that but mage fans just love mage um, you know so. Um, so that eased some of my stress about it, but I was worried that I was gonna that I was gonna somehow tank it, but it turned out okay. Dead Man's Rust is the most recent Kickstarter. That was the first one that I was fully in the driver's seat for. I'm super proud of it. The concept behind it was to create an a uh, campaign book that would take characters from levels one to ten, uh, but would also serve as kind of a sandbox to cover central uh, Gelspad, which is, Gelspad's the, the primary continent that our fifth edition content takes place on. Um, it's It was the battleground for most of the Divine War, uh, which is an event in recent Scarlands history. Uh, in fact, it ended uh, about 150 years prior to the start date of the game. And this was a war in which Uh, gods and titans were fighting on the ground and people were fighting alongside them so if you are a human you might have a sword or a shield that was given to your grandfather by a god Um, if you're an elf you might have fought shoulder to shoulder with a god at one point or or a dwarf if you're an old enough uh, character (laughs) So a uh, really rich, cool sort of environment. And gelsped's where most of these battles took place. There's a lot of places that are um, scarred from, from the war, hence the name of the setting. Um, and we wanted to really showcase an area of gelsped called the Hornsaw Forest, um, which was at one point, this beautiful verdant green forest that was home to the unicorns of Scarredlands. And when one of the Titans got ripped apart in the forest, their blood sort of seeped into everything and mutated everything. uh, Which is where we get our unicorns, um, which are the horn-saw unicorns. Uh, They're a big like imagine like a regular unicorn except it's on steroids and it has a serrated horn.
0: Um, (laughs) Excellent. They're
3: they're very aggressive. They're not nice. Um, And so uh, I really wanted to focus on that area because there's a lot of cool lore and history tied to it. Um, And uh, we focused on, uh, there are several different uh, playable peoples um, in the setting who are unique to the Scarred Lands, or at least we have a very unique take on them. Um, one of them, uh, which was introduced in the 5th edition player's guide, is called the Hall Legionnaires. And they are far and away my favorite playable race. Uh, they're sort of the idea is is that there are these souls that for whatever reason did not move on to the next life. And they're sort of pulled into these magical spires and then bound into armor where they become a new being effectively. You're not like a ghost that's haunting this armor. You're effectively reborn, almost reincarnated as a hollow legionnaire. Um, You might have, uh, very strong memories of your previous life where you might have no memory whatsoever of it and i just really liked the idea behind them and, and the lore of how they came to be and the, the i thought they would be a cool uh, group of folk to sort of hang this adventure around and because they were my favorites i immediately thought well what can i do to make to imperil them um, so we <laughs> so we we said to this campaigner on the introduction of this disease that is um, resistant to magical healing and is sweeping through them. And it doesn't really affect most people. If you're just a normal living person, you don't have any symptoms when you contract the disease, uh, but you're a carrier. However, if you're a holy or a construct or you know, have uh, there's a couple other character types that have like metallic parts worked into their bodies. Then this imperils you greatly and can kill you. Um, so you get the added plus of the character, the player characters might become plague rats um, inadvertently. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a beautiful sentence right there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: they
3: find out, you know, session 12, like, Oh crap, this whole village is dying and it's our fault. Um, you know things like, that. and I want to play with kind of the pathos that that generates. And the setting is so full of these, just opportunities. I think to to uh, twist those emotional knobs again, owing to the fact that it was created by, you know, the same people that were working on you know these world darkness games, these games that were very story oriented, and it's just such a rich environment. I'm I know I'm all over the place, but I I can I can rant all day about how awesome Dead Man's Rust is.
0: I mean, it's, it seems awesome. When I found when I found the Kickstarter, I I loved just kind of the. There was something about the setting that was so interesting and it was right around the time that we were starting to talk a lot of dark sun and we were you know like i said we're huge world of darkness fans like that's really kind of where i feel like i grew up kind of as a as a role player was through the world of darkness and so we're starting to put all these things together um and that's that's kind of what what spawned this entire conversation right was that you know i was we were doing all this research on dark sun i was like oh man i kind of wonder what the connection is here what are your influences that you're bringing to scarred lands? I know that, that, you know, I mean, scarred lands as a product has been out there for 20 something years now or whatever. um, And that your involvement, at least as a writer for it is relatively recent, but what are the influences that you're bringing to it?
3: Well, for sure there is dark sun in the DNA. And I think there was dark sun in the DNA long before I got here, but I am also a a big fan of dark sun. Definitely dark sun, definitely heavy metal magazine. Um, My, my sort of, X meets Y pitch when I'm talking to people who've never heard about Scarlands before is if you take uh, issue of heavy metal magazine and the player's handbook and slam them together very very hard you will spontaneously generate a Scarlands player's guide. Excellent. Um, and that's and that's the aesthetic we tried to push forward with it, and that's the that's the touchstone wherever possible, trying to get back to uh, you know if you think of like the heavy metal cartoon, you know. Uh, trying to evoke like that, the Tarna of the Tarakian section or the Dar section of, of the heavy metal cartoon. Um, those are really kind of like touchstones for me aesthetically. Anytime I'm like, well, how do we present this? Um, you know, I'll go watch a clip of Tarna in a sword fight and be like, that's how we present it. Obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, and, and again, that also, the mixture between that and Dark Sun, particularly like the Brahma and stuff like that. You know, it it all kind of comes around, but that you know that aesthetic that uh, one might imagine airbrushed on the side of a conversion van
1: um, <laughs> is definitely informed the setting. Um, As a player of a Warforged in a five E game, the concept of dead man's rust and a disease that affects metal is scary, uh, but what a great complicating factor. Because you have, at least in that game, you have this character uh, lineage that is basically immune to disease. And they don't fear that. So they can stride into any town without any fear of concept. And what a great type of element to uh, bring to those types of characters. So it's like, hey, no one gets out of this clean. Like, everybody's got something they need to worry about. Um, and, and, and I think that, that speaks volumes about story. Uh, and dives deep into that, um, that old vampire masquerade uh, lineage where everything is kind of like you'd expect, but a little bit darker, right. uh, a, a little bit harder, uh, right. a tad bit nasty. And and I, I love things like that. I mean, that's a great complicating factor that uh, I could I can pour it into things I do all the time. Well, thank you. means a lot to hear. And, and
3: one of the Sort of again um, tying it back to Dark Sun. One of the things that we wrestled with very early on in the design process for Dead Man's Rest was um, in Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition, disease is no longer a threat once you're about fourth level. Um, you just are your paladins are immune to it, and you got spells out the wazoo that can make it go away. And so we sort of piggybacked on on a rule that was introduced in. It was originally introduced in the, in the three three 3.5 um, Relics and Rituals book, I believe, but we ported it into the 5th edition Player's Guide, which is uh, true rituals. these These spells that are extremely complicated, extremely dangerous to cast. You can kill yourself if you screw up casting one. But they can do massive magical feats. So like you, if you want to, for example, turn everyone in a city into zombies, or if you want to raise a flying castle, um, you would use true ritual magic. And that gives you this extra oomph above and beyond a standard, I'm going to spend a spell slot and then I'll go take a nap and i will be fine. Um, so building piggybacking off of that, we've introduced in Deadman's man's rust, a mechanic called uh, malignant maladies. And the idea is, that um, these things are resistant or immune to standard magical healing. So the only way to uh, cure the rust is with a true ritual. Problem being is you have to figure out how to, A, throughout the course of the campaign, you have to figure that out. And then B, you have to figure out how to craft the ritual that's going to work. Um, So there's a lot of, uh, it, it then becomes you know well we have to find the information of how this got started we have to track it down we have to do all this investigation uh so it really takes something that uh in the normal run of you know if you've just been playing sort of vanilla dnd through 5e um you know disease really does become just like this uh, whatever it's a, it's a mild inconvenience and you take that mild inconvenience and you put it center stage dark sun was very good with that as well with things like food and water <laughs> you know
0: Resource management. Yeah, we talk about resource management a lot. Yeah. Uh,
1: A major factor of two of the episodes we recently uh, recorded, one that recently released, I think actually just released this past weekend, was a detailed discussion about resource management and how it can be such a great factor in games. Something lost sometime after first and second edition as being an important part of the game that brings a lot of fun and enjoyment. And again, complicating factors that adds a whole new element of strategy to the game. So anything that's having that has that is always a plus uh, at tables I'm at.
0: Uh, the, the whole thing about the prolonged rituals. I mean, that sounds directly out of like something from Clan Tremere, uh, with like the group rituals <laughs> and the 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 ability of of uh, magicians and wizards to go ahead and pool their resources to make more power. Um, that's a that's a genius idea. So. Okay, thank you.
2: I was just gonna, I was just gonna jump in with uh, the what Lee was talking about, played directly into the disease too, because um, resource management versus upticking the disease, bringing it center stage, taking the mundane, the things that the players take for granted because it's easy now, and making it harder again. That I think is one of the big elements of crafting stories for higher level players. So it's important to constantly be doing.
3: Yeah. I absolutely agree. And I think that I think that that creates, at least the intention is to create a, a an environment that is interesting to people who have a lot of years at the table and know their way around the game, but without being too arcane or or challenging from like a actual like gameplay perspective for new players. So one of the tight ropes to kind of walk as you're, as you're adjusting things like that, like especially if you're designing for Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition, this is one of the most play-tested games that's ever seen market. The the and Next play test had somewhere like 100,000 people involved or something like that. Like it works. The, the, the engine works. So when you start poking at how that engine runs, you got to be real careful that you're not adding in... Uh, elements that are so complex that you're making it too arcane for the for the, the new player. One of the strengths of 5e is, is it's streamlined and smooth quality. Um, so I think if you can strike that, you know, where you're adding in a, a level of resource management or a, um, a setting element, a, a MacGuffin you have to track down, uh, a puzzle, things like that without, uh, you know, if you can do that without making it inaccessible, I think... That's really where you where where it sings the most in in the design space, and I think uh, much to the credit of the amazing writing team we had on Dead Man's Rest, we were able to hit that, and I'm super proud of that fact.
1: Excellent. You know, um, I was thinking as you're as you're talking about those things, I've toyed around, built a few subclasses that i have not been 100 percent happy with, uh, built you know worked on. Uh, new features that I would swap out with features with existing classes. Uh, The big fan favorite is fix a ranger type thing. And uh, you're right. This is the play tested game. There are things that really work. Um, And while you, everybody has ideas about, oh, I would tweak this or I would do that. When the rubber hits the road is do these new features actually function in that same streamlined fashion and work with the game versus break it all together make it more complicated, make it more cumbersome or make it confusing. And maybe you can speak to this as the, as the line was being designed, what were some of the trip ups that you came across? Right. And
3: it's funny because with Scarred Lands specifically, there are two factors that are, that were beyond my control and already in play that just sort of in my mind, teed me up for extreme success in design. Uh, the first factor being that um, 5e got away from uh, prestige classes in uh, favor of subclasses, which the original, the, the third edition Scarred Lands was very prestige class-reliant. Uh, you didn't really start exploring your character until you got a prestige class. The first big book I really got to experiment with that on was we did Youngman's Guide to Gelsman, which is kind of a the shorthand explanation is it's the Starland's answer to, like, uh, Tasha's or to, um, you know, right? Full of subclasses, full of new backgrounds, full of a uh, couple new playable races, things like that. We also introduced our people's mechanic in there, which is something I'm quite proud of, which was to sort of uncouple, uh, you know, for, pe- for tables who want to uncouple race as a mechanic, working on, on a way to do that that still held to the setting. Um, was a lot of fun, um, but also a big, a big design challenge for all the reasons we've been discussing. Uh, the other thing, though, that set us up, I think, for success was that the world of Skarn is a little bit harder than your average D and D world. So you get to, you get that narrative excuse to make some of the powers a little bit tougher, to have that little bit of extra oomph. Uh, as long as you're avoiding the complication, so making things that are simple but buff as opposed to, you know, well, this is really neat, but you have to go through five steps to make it work. Um, that was a big lesson that uh, I learned working on Yagmans, and was very, uh, it just, it, it, it flowed together very well. Simplicity is key. One of the things, uh, not to tangent too far off from Scarlands, but I also have a Patreon where uh, each month that I'm over a certain amount, I create just a, a Patreon-exclusive Um rpg supplement you know between five and ten pages uh, oftentimes i'll do an adventure sometimes i'll do like classes or something like that and the last couple months i've been doing some sort of core class re-examinations um because uh a a minor criticism i have for 5e is that there are certain um things that are coupled in the class design that makes it very difficult to sell certain concepts, right? Um, a per- prime example of what I'm talking about would be the, the uh, what is it, Inquisitor or uh, Invest, I can't remember the name of the rogue subclass, but the idea that you are this law enforcement uh, person, right? And you're, you know, you're, you're all about solving crimes and, and understanding things. I have yet to meet someone who can explain to me why that character has sneak attack right um <laughs> like you just wouldn't it doesn't make any sense um if i want to draw up laura croft from the tomb raider games the rogue is uh, a great choice except for the sneak attack part because that doesn't make any sense doesn't add anything to the character and is directly in violation of kind of what the concept of that character is so looking at some of those ideas i've tinkered around a little bit with like okay let's change some base class features to make these fit other to open up another avenue of, of, of concept um you know and accepting that uh there's going to be some trade-off the rogue that i redesigned that i did is not going to be as good in a fight as a, a vanilla rogue uh but that's because they're good in other situations you know <laughs> and and designed that and one thing that 5e does and it it's good for what it's good for what 5e tries to do narratively but if you're trying to fit different narratives in, it's not so great is it makes sure that everybody kind of has even if it's not your specialty everybody has a role when when arrows start flying and, and swords start clanking everybody's got you know some some mileage they can bring to that part of the table and i think if you really want to dive in a narrative you can get away with sacrificing a bit of that uh in exchange for giving other areas specialty to shine in. But that's way tangential to land stuff.
1: Um. <laughs> maybe not as much as you think, because I know I've always been a fan of, and I will every now and then play that character that has absolutely zero ability slash desire to be in a fight, or maybe they have desire, but no ability to be in that fight. Um, and I'm all about it. Uh, you know, I think that there's a reason why... Narratively, those are some great characters. Um, but in a game that's heavily combat oriented and mechanically driven, it takes a special kind of player to want to do it, or a different kind of player. I don't want to call myself special, but it certainly takes a D, a, a storyteller or a game master who is aware of those factors and knows how to put the other elements into the game so that character always has a moment to shine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think of characters like the Inquisitive and the Mastermind. The Mastermind, by the way, my absolute favorite, uh, second favorite rogue, is definitely the type of the type of uh, subclass that needs that type of love. Like um, it does something very different and needs to be considered differently.
3: Right, and I think it got kind of stuck with the rogue. Mm-hmm. Because where else are you going to put it? Where else are you going to put it? Yeah, exactly. And so I I saw an opportunity and it was just something I played with. But by the same token, like this last month, the Patreon exclusive I did was just Warlock patrons. And I can't believe I haven't seen this elsewhere. Um, I just looked at the SRD and I grabbed everything that was high CR that didn't already fit easily into one of the things. And was like, well, what if you have a, a Sphinx for a patron? What if you have a, you know, chromatic dragon, why is that not a warlock patron? <laughs> you know. And, and and that's very simple because you're going into then the creature's features, pulling that feature out and then rewording it so that it fits a player character, you know, putting some bumpers on sometimes I,
0: I can totally see a a dragonborn uh, chromatic dragon uh warlock with a chromatic, chromatic dragon uh, patron. Like that's uh yeah. I can, yeah, ab- especially with, with, with the new, uh, the new dragonborn options that they put out in the, uh, in the UA uh, last month. I can, uh, I can definitely see some of that. That's a, uh, that's pretty great. So cool. And, and
3: that's one of the things I look for. And that also informs a lot of the Scarlet design and a lot of the um, ideas for what I try to push forward narratively as we're doing the new material is I am a huge fan of unexplored space. I love looking at what's already been established and looking for the white spaces in the canvas, and saying what can we what can we put in there? Why is that gap there? Um, what interesting thing can we hide in that gap and make people just sort of peel back a layer or two to find? Um, that's I love that crap. That is my favorite. <laughs> favorite <laughs> <crap.
1: Yeah. laughs> that's
3: probably my favorite thing to do as a storyteller uh, in general is find those little narrative spaces. Have it be fluid. Go places where people don't think to go. And, and, and bring those things to the forefront because I think uh, you'll often find that people want to be there, they just didn't know it because they didn't know that what was there. You know what I mean? Um, they want to they find those gaps and they, you, you, they'll find things they weren't aware that they were uh, going to be so passionate about. So interesting. you know. If, if you just pitched Dead Man's Rust as, well, there's this disease running around and it's, it's inconvenient for people. Nobody's going to care, but when you start introducing those elements of like, you know, nobody can figure out why and you might be carrying this disease and killing people and not realize it. And, huh. you know, I love th- that
0: angle of it. Yeah.
3: Oh yeah. It's, I, I wish I could be a fly on the wall of the various tables that are going to run into this book in the next several years and see how, game masters introduce that element because i'm sure there's going to be tables where people know going in what's up and i'm sure there's going to be tables where jaws hit the floor when they realize we gave this to everyone oh my (laughs) god that rusty sword we picked up in episode two
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's all fun and games that you go through town and you hoot and holler at the tavern and go around and explore and meet every single person in the town and then you go do your mission when you come back to town to share your spoils, and They're the town's dead. a ghost town, and <laughs> everybody is gone. And not gone like disappeared, but like literally, you just see people like lined in places where they fell, uh, you know, and all those great horror elements, uh, you know, the family that didn't want to bear to see the end and the player characters happen upon that. Like, oh, that's yeah. just, oh my goodness. <laughs> a good story I'd,
0: I'd, I'd say that I'm <laughs> that I'm going to steal that from my own table, but my players listen to this podcast and that would be too big a spoiler to reveal. So I'm not going to say that.
1: My players already know uh, that I've got, uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I made a comment in a, in a earlier podcast where I said uh, the games we were playing in second edition were lending themselves to better role play. Then we saw a White Wolf and we learned techniques to do it. And then we were doing it and i made the comment that the but hobby was headed Rifts. in this direction the, we weren't world. the only table or tables doing it that was happening across the gaming community all of those who came up where we came up through first and second edition were feeling that urge to role play more and better and and hearing another creator whom we've never met before uh right. Wherever you came up in yeah. doing some of those same things and having some talking about some of those same experiences is really um enriching and um what's the word I'm looking for? Um not satisfying, but uh confirming uh of our experience because it's like that's exactly the kinds of things we've been talking about. It's like you know, nobody is necessarily reinventing the wheel. There's just this collective gaming conscious every so often that says, Let's do this differently. Let's do this better. And then it expresses itself in various games in various ways and that are very different, but all with that same goal. And they are and are all things that we can come back to 20, 30 years later and say, Wow, that's where it was. And here's where we are. And ooh. I really like that, <laughs> and it's super. It's super
3: interesting to look at the history, and you can places where maybe even at the time it didn't hit, you didn't quite understand what you were watching happen. But when you look at it with hindsight, like Planescape, Planescape is like the stepping stone between killing monsters and taking their stuff and modern role playing. Uh, if you're looking strictly at D&D, right? Planescape was the time where, you know, they looked at what what White Wolf was doing with clans and tribes and things like that, and they were like, oh, let's have factions, um, you know? <laughs> and they really, like, kind of... So that's kind of like this, meta, this moment of metamorphosis, and it's one of the 10,000 things I love about Planescape. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting to note those little things. Or when you look at, like, Ars Magica as the framework you're talking earlier about the tremere with the true rituals but if you look go back to ours magica and you look all that started there you know so really been working since like 84 85 i think when ours magic came out so you know wow, it's, really it's, it's fun oh to God. watch those productions.
2: <laughs> yeah, <but>
3: old. <laughs> ours had been around for a while when yeah. it, it, i think ours third edition was what was coming out when vampire first came out
0: so uh, earlier, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to put on your your prognosticator hat here a little bit, and and uh, <laughs> sure. so we talked earlier about kind of the late '90s and just the glut of quality games that were bringing bringing role playing R O L E to the forefront. Uh, And ROLL playing was kind of taking a back step, right? Uh, You talked about Shadowrun, we had D&D, the the three series of D&D, you had the White Wolf games, all these things that were happening in the late 90s, kind of informing where we are now. So looking at the you know, uh capital T, capital G, capital C, the gaming community now as a whole. What's the next step? What is next in where is the hobby going and where are where are the games going and kind of kind of what's next?
3: It's interesting to ask because on one hand, I'm gonna I'm gonna wax poetic about the aging process a little bit. On one hand, I feel just like I did when I was 14 years old sitting around in my denies playing DC heroes with my friends, right? I, I I feel that I have that same level of wonder and and childlike, if not childish, uh, imagination about the industry. On the other hand, I'm kind of an old man here and not 100% sure that I am in the driver's seat of where that's going anymore. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. um, so to an extent, like, there are things I see that I find exciting intellectually, but uh, intimidating or just not interesting personally. Uh, I'm very, in, I'm very excited from a gaming community perspective uh, to see some of the work, especially stuff that's being done, like on itch um, things where you have very narrative driven story games where you have like, here's a premise. and We're going to do like, you know um, you know, two persons, one-on-one play and, and, here's the three questions that the game's based on. That, that level of design I think is super exciting and I think will have effects 10, 15 years from now even on how the more traditional tabletop games are designed. I think you're going to start seeing some of those things sneaking into b sneaking into... And, and, and through the community content, you kind of already are. But on the other hand, You know, I think there is uh, some ebb and flow of the lesson that I think the tabletop industry keeps learning from a publishing perspective is uh, you stack, you, you come up with something cool, you stack stuff on top of it, you stack expansions and and and, you know, source books and other things on top of it until it can no longer bear the weight of its own uh, expansion. And then you go back and you build something that is more streamlined and better and repeat, you know, lather, rinse, repeat. And I think that that I don't see that process going anywhere anytime soon. Um, and I think some games are have been performing better in their iterations at the like back to basics, the restreamlining, uh, the sim- I I really cannot stress enough how important I think simplicity and design is, which is part of why I love Five E um, because at its core it is super simple. And I think some companies are a little bit better uh, at hitting that note than others. I think there are some games that are like, oh, we'll do a new edition. It's going to be just as complicated, if not more so, than the last one. Um, I'm not. Gonna, <laughs> I'm not going to name names here, Shadowrun, but. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, uh, exactly. yeah. yeah.
1: Um, uh, not calling anybody out, but. <laughs> well, Rifts, and, um, and to be fair, Riffs has not actually changed anything. Right. Riffs
3: doesn't have a new edition. They have new, like, printings. Yeah, um, they have but... new printings,
1: <laughs> uh, and new settings.
3: Right. Bigger yeah. books, big, bigger books for sure. The Riffs Ultimate Edition is just the Riffs core book with a couple of other books shove Packed into it.
1: it. Yeah. <laughs> and they're great for reprinting content in large swaths and putting it in. And, uh, and I say that and I am a fan of risk. I have tons of do, their books. Yeah. As I say to anybody who's my friends and, uh, and especially the two that are here, uh, oh I will call you on your <laughs> b- <laughs> the fact. That, the, the fact that I love you is why I'm calling you on your b- If I didn't care I wouldn't care. I wouldn't talk about it. it you know uh, if I it, it, and I think as podcasters and content creators and, and you know, travel, uh, let me know if I'm off base here. But I think you owe it to yourself as a creative to be honest with other creatives. Oh, for sure. <laughs> you know, I, I, I there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it, you know, I, I want people to be honest with me about the stuff I do. The things I've done, if I've created something and it's overly complicated or it breaks some of the rules that we're talking about or doesn't work well, the fact that you're my friend, don't tell me you love something and it's great and you're happy to see it. If in fact it doesn't work, it's not going to be good and you're never going to use it. You know, so well,
3: and being and being honest with yourself is a huge thing as a creator, and it took me some time to get comfortable with that when i first did contagion um my mindset on it was very much like it's going to be the way i want it to be And don't really give a rat's furry tail what you have to say about it i'm putting the book out you don't like it don't buy it and that attitude was the attitude of a 20 year old kid with his head in his tail you know yep and as i went through and started like really getting feedback and it's easy to do when you have ten people that are looking at your book to, to stick to your guns, um, but when you get it out in the world and people are giving you like actual feedback and it, you know people that don't actually don't have to like you know share a meal with you afterward, um, yeah. you know uh, you start to really you can either let that sink in and let that help you grow as a creator, you know, or you can throw up a wall against it. Um, I think we're culturally because we are so raw and exposed um, through our social media, especially in the era of coronavirus. Um, You know, for some of us, it's really the only way we've been engaging with the world for the last year. Right. Uh, And I think that that I hope because I am a a tireless optimist, I hope that that will help us culturally um, get more comfortable with, Accepting criticism, but also being more aware of if I fire my mouth off in the wrong way, if I put the wrong thing out there, if I approach this in a careless fashion, I'm going to pay for it. Um, you know, it's going to come at a material cost to me, and that's a lesson I myself have had to learn in recent memory. Um, you know, so, uh, and you know we we like to think of ourselves as, as really really smart creatures who once we learn a lesson, it's learned. Uh, but we're not. And, you <laughs> know, not so much the case. <laughs> right? yeah, no. we oftentimes have to touch a oven four or five times before we realize it's hot. But that can, that applies, I think, just as well to uh, work as working as a designer and working as a storyteller as it does to like more cultural um, or just social things.
0: Right? Even just as a person. I mean, my, my son is 20. He's a sophomore in college now. And. Which is a scary thing to say. First of all, that my son is twenty, but that's a separate issue altogether. Um, But he, on some level, makes the mistakes that I made when I was twenty. And from my now advanced age, I look back at it like, well, how could you not know what I know? You know what I know now, because clearly I knew it twenty years ago. How can you know? And he looks at me like, you know, like. How, how can, how can you be so wrong? How has age caused you to be so wrong <laughs> over all these years, you know? <laughs> and so it's like, he's, he's convinced that he's right. I'm convinced that I'm right. And there's probably the, it's like the extreme album, you know, there's three sides to every story. Right. So, right.
3: Well, and as you, you know, if you'll forget another, reference. another strange uh, tangent, I had the unique experience of being a parent at 16. Um, and so when my kids got to be, there, there came a point and it, my, it blew my mind um, where I'm looking at my kids and I said, I have no reference to the situation you're in in your life right now. You know, as they're like finishing high school, I've never been in your position because when I was your age, I had to worry about feeding another human being. <laughs> you know, so we're now at a stage where I can't directly relate to your struggle. Um, you know, and a lot of parents, I think, don't necessarily experience that because they wait until, you know, they've, they can vote before they start cracking kids up. Um, but,
1: <laughs> Trav, you, and you and I are in much the same boat. I am a parent of two 29 year olds or just about to be 29 year olds. Uh, because at 17, I was in the military at 18 and four days. I had to rent my own apartment. And I was working a full-time job, a part-time job, going to uh, going to school full-time, a varsity athlete, and all of those things. I don't relate to some of the things that my kids are going to going through. Like by the time they turn seventeen, I joined the military. I went to basic training the summer I turned uh, the summer after I turned seventeen. You know, I don't have a frame of reference for that, and it does create those kinds of challenges taking those types of uh, understandings about challenges to the table and the gaming table. I came up in in, in the hobby at a time where we role-played two to three hours Monday through Friday, as long as it wasn't sunny outside, you know, during the winter, that's what we did all weekdays, Saturdays, we did Boy Scout stuff or we went sledding and all that. But basically we just Role played hours on end, the same characters. We didn't even have it as a campaign. We were just playing DD and we just played our characters until they were like 30 or 50th level and then we played their kids. You know, we just, that's what right. we did. So it's hard for me to understand why some of the things I think about and talk about from a gaming perspective are so alien. But at the same time, when I put on my other hat and I say, but they don't have those experiences. What can I do to bring forth the best elements of that? That's how I got to this podcast. That's why we write the things that we write. And I'm sure that's uh, somewhere in the, in the secret sauce as to what you're doing over at Scarred Lands. I,
0: I really like what you were talking about, how how 5e really tried to streamline the rules and how that was very much kind of a, a trend in, in gaming. You know, that, that whole that minimalistic trend that you see on itch. I mean, you know, on games like like The Quiet Year or um, there's one that I, I uh, you talk about how to kind of incorporate that stuff into d and D. I've had this dream about running a, a, a one shot where the first hour of that one shot um, is a session of everybody is John just to go ahead and introduce everybody to the game setting that the one shot is going to take place in um, stuff like that and so uh, and those super strong narrative driven games that have really sort of on some level redefined what role playing games are there's a role playing game for two players called the batteries are dying Um, have you heard about that where basically you play two astronauts that are in a space station and they can only communicate via radio and the batteries are dying and after an hour they're going to die and so it's kind of like this is our last minute of this is our last hour of human communication with anybody else we can't reach earth it's just us and this is it this is the last hour last hour of existence Uh, how how am I going to have some moment of, of meaningful uh, conversation with this other person in this moment in time? Um, And it's just, it's redefining what role playing is like there are, there are in that game. I mean, there, there are no dice. There is no table. There are no figs. There is no character sheet. It's, it's two people in wheelie chairs wheeling around an office, simulating being trapped in space. The concept, the, 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 the thought power that goes into designing something that is that simple and that powerful is amazing and so i'm i was really glad to hear um that that you and your your erudite observation think it's uh there's going to be more of it coming forward and it's one thing that we've kind of said like in in a lot of our subclass discussions about 5e i mean i know glenn you and i you've raised this point a hundred times when we talked about subclasses is that the subclasses in 5e are their weakest when they get complicated or super, super focused on one area. Um, and that, you know, and that they really should be more flexible and that the, that the best subclasses are the ones that are the most flexible. Um, they, they can still be tailored to a particular, to a particular focus, but that they need some flexibility.
3: Yeah. And, and I think, I think that, the importance that we have uh placed on that because i think especially like if you look at like early dmd right once you get past like chain mail <laughs> and you get into like okay you know now we're now we're gonna have like nastara now we're gonna have birthright now we have these settings oh, we have Earth, right? this uh we have this excuse this narrative excuse for you to be running around doing these things that tapped into a really cool combination that hadn't really happened before of mixing improvisational theater elements into that board game. And I think as we evolve as a hobby, those elements are becoming, I think the improvisational theater elements becoming more central, and I think that the board game elements are becoming more refined. Um, and I think that can only lead to exciting places. I do think, and again, this might just be old man talk. Um, you know, uh, I do think that there comes a point where you have stepped outside of, where what you're doing is no longer the tabletop role-playing hobby. Uh, you're now into more of like a theater exercise. And I do, And I do see a line of demarcation between those two. But I honestly, I don't know, again, I don't know if that's, you know, me looking at it with, aged eyes. I don't know if that's a dinosaur screaming at a meteor that's coming toward them. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, I,
1: <laughs> I think I see some of that as well. I don't know if that's a distinction without a difference. Like, if everybody playing the game is having fun, then I'm okay if it's slightly different, and it's no longer the thing we used to call the egg, and it's now what we call a chicken, or what was a dinosaur is now a bird. Like, there was a point in time where that happened, right? And at the end of the day, if everybody was having fun with it, the world went on right. and, and, and it was okay. And the fact is that that creature, even though it's no longer a dinosaur and now it's a chicken, continued. That's evolutionary success. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that works out really, really well. And yeah, as long as people
3: are telling stories and having fun, you know, that's the, the, the at the end of the day, that's the, that's the aim, right? I think if you can set up a thing where all you're doing is really rolling dice and and moving around a map, but you do it in a way where people are having fun doing that, that's just as valid as if there's not a die in sight and you're just rolling around on rolly chairs pretending like you lost in space. So I don't mean, uh, and I certainly hope it doesn't come across as an invalidation of any of those things, uh, because that's not how I feel about it from a designer perspective, from a, like, this is the thing I do for a living. So how do I fit into this? It's a little, um, I have a hard time making that leap. And I've thought about like designing because it's funny um, when I was like nine or 10, my cousin and I were really big into the uh, official handbook of the Marvel universe. And this was a series of comics that came out and just had like, Uh, you know histories and biographies and then there was a little section that broke down like the you know vital statistics of the characters so you'd have their height their weight how much could they lift what sort of physical shape are they and so on and so forth and we would sit around and tell stories with these characters partially because we couldn't afford the comics so we would tell stories to these characters And whenever there would be like a, you know, we would each assume the roles of various characters, whenever there would be a combat or a conflict, we would look and say, well, obviously killer Shrike is going to lose this fight because the thing has class 100 strength and killer Shrike is just someone who engages in moderate regular exercise. You know what I mean? And, and so, you know, that is the story gaming. That's exactly what it is. Um, but I never thought of it until really recently as I was examining some
1: of my own design biases as an actual like gaming experience. You know what I mean? I did many of the same things with the DC Who's Who. I went as I went so far as to make um, little paper dolls because I couldn't afford action figures for each of the characters in every Who's Who. Uh, like nice. every Who's Who ever printed, I had a paper doll action figure that I made for every single one of them. Hand, hand cut colored the whole bit oh uh, just so I could play out the comics that I would read in the store that I couldn't afford to bring home. So
3: um. yeah you, we, you you make the you make do with what you can and you find ways like we are incredible um, I, and I think this is just kind of a testament to human consciousness. We are incredibly skilled at finding ways to fill the void. Um, you know and yeah. to like creatively build on and things that we find interesting.
2: So we've been talking about the um, improvisational additions and uh, the interactive storytelling that's being really coming predominantly into the game. And I know you were talking about it from a creator standpoint. Um, and it sounded like you're kind of coming from the perspective of not being exactly certain where, where that leaves you in terms of your role uh, going forward. But I think it's important that, As designers, we still remember that the game has to be inclusive, too. And not everybody is an improv artist, right? I'm semi-decent at improv. Uh, I play in a game uh, called Spire. I don't know if any of y'all have ever played it. They just sold out their second book's Kickstarter a month or so ago in like 45 minutes. Um, But it's very uh, narrative storytelling. The players are coming up with the plot just as much as the storyteller is as you go through it. Um, and it's very improvisational, but other players that I know and I actively role play with don't like the game because not everybody's comfortable being that forward. Um, so when you're looking at an inclusive hobby like D and D, yeah, I think those pieces are definitely going to come more into it. And I think that's awesome because it's going to encourage good role playing, but I don't think it's going to completely be able to take it over and take away the mechanic because to stay inclusive, we've got to be able to include the people who aren't out enough to straight up improv an entire scene for the whole game. Um, so you know, I think the the bowl's the the bowl, the glass is neither half full nor half empty, but it's gonna kind of still need to be in that middle.
3: Yeah, that I would say that's probably true. And I would also even go so far as to say that there's and again, this is this is a place where I'm kind of confronting the biases. Does this mean that we're going to look at uh, these two types of games sort of coexisting with a middle ground that is most of the hobby, right? Because you have your extreme, you have your rifts where it's really like super number oriented and super crunchy. You have the batteries dying where it's completely um, narrative driven. Those are ends of the spectrum. And I think most of the hobby kind of falls between those. I'm I'm just very interested academically in is which direction it's leaning, particularly just because of you know the whole the whole Gretzky thing, right? The be where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is at.
0: Um,
3: yeah, absolutely.
0: Even uh, so, we just did an episode about um, specifically the exploration pillar of role playing games, right? And it's what we talked about a lot in that episode was how exploration was king. In first and second edition, it was absolutely it, exploration was where it's at to the detriment of role play, right? And then in like third edition again, we talked in that mid '90s era when things kind of started shifting. Uh, role play became bigger, and exploration started to go ahead and take a back seat. And so now. People like us who are putting out podcasts can say, Hey, everybody who's really, really used to the narrative driven, role play driven games, here's this thing that we used to do a lot of and have. Scores and scores of maps and tactics and everything like that. This is a fun thing, too. You can bring this in. Um, and so I, it's, I think that there's another pendulum that kind of swings through that, too. It's like, are we going role play or are we going exploration? And how does it kind of swing back and forth through those two? Not there, I don't think they're quite as extremes as the as what you're talking about, but they're just again, they're different, they're different styles, they're different, they're different, uh, they're different hammers in the toolbox.
1: Absolutely. I was gonna say that. Uh- I kind of if I'm putting on my prognosticator hat, uh, Dustin asked me to do this because when he does, I go on for hours.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But if I were to do that, I would say there's a happy medium similar to what Glenn described, where you've got games on the extremes. And then you've got a, a series of games. Maybe it's not just one company. Uh, maybe it's two or three companies uh, that are doing a similar thing kind of in the middle. Uh, or maybe it is just one company's doing it and you have a game like 5e that has optional rules that bring in the, the extremes so there would be a game that has an optional rule for that extremely uh the batteries are dying element or there's optional rules for throwing in the extra crunch of fifteen thousand different fighting styles and 18 million different rounds of combat so you can decide how exactly you're blocking the strike, the key strike to your left, which is a separate skill and a separate bonus from the kick strike to your, to your right. But uh, essentially, uh, I see this world, where it, not dissimilar to what we have now in 5e, which is, Hey, those of you who like superior combat tactics and are willing to deal with the fact it takes combat a little longer, here are optional flanking rules. Those of you that really, really like the extra flavor and the extra um, personalization, here are the optional feat rules. You know, we need some more things to help out uh, exploration. So if you're a more exploration-driven game, maybe all of your characters can get a feat that leans into the exploration pillar. Or you can spend more time, here are some better rules or more detailed equipment lists if that's the kind of thing that you want to do. So I can think of a game that has this beautiful framework that can be as simple or as complex, but complex in the areas you want it to be complex and simple in the areas that aren't your table's flavor. I think, yeah. And I think too,
3: like, you know, the, there's a lot of things that get tossed around in like game design theory, like the idea of like white, you know, white room balance and all that jazz where like, you know, uh, are all the numbers, you know, is every character, every player character in this equal to the others and so on and so forth. And a lot of that, I, I do think, you know, while it's got its place, it's largely a uh, claptrap that we throw around to feel more important about what it is we're actually doing. Um, but I do think there is merit in exploring those things so that you know, Like, if you're going to, like, let's say you're going to do like a ground up game design, right? And you want to be able to have that modular experience that you just described. You know, we're going to make a game right now where our mechanic is going to run around 1D10. And everything else is going to be adding to or taking away from when you roll that D10. You know, Um, it's a cool thought exercise for design, right? Right. Um, but you all then you have the other component of that is so how do you present that to players um, where, in, in a way where it's going to um, catch their interest particularly in a, in a world where a lot of the traditional tabletop gaming um, energy is going toward either existing brands that have been in this space for 40 years, 50 years almost now or licensed properties where you're really relying on bringing in fan familiarity. You know what I mean? Um, I'm not saying that it doesn't matter what the dice system is for the Witcher game, um, but stripping it away to a raw, like business side, the Witcher is going to put asses in seats regardless of whether the system is good.
1: <laughs> you <know? laughs> you're, you're absolutely not wrong. Robotech is a perfect example of that. Look, I think it was done best when Palladium does it. That's because that's where I first experienced it in a role-playing game. I've seen it in other avenues where it has not been as fun for me, but that's because of my familiarity with Palladium. At the end of the day, if I'm playing the guy in a, in a Veritech next to Rick Hunter, I don't care how many dice I'm rolling. I'm in a Veritech next to Rick Hunter. Right. That's, that's, that's the end goal. That's why I pick up a book that says Robotech, right? So everything else is a specific type of window dressing. Now, there's a lot of game design merit to does this design equate to the feel that you're trying to achieve? Right. Does it give you that fast-paced feel? Does it give you that gritty every little bit counts feel? You know, I think a a dice system that plays Die Hard has to be different than a dice system that plays Robotech. They're different genres, right? Right. So I think I think there is some game design merit for some differences. However, I think Steve Jackson's Gerps has also done a great job of explaining. Maybe not.
3: <laughs>
1: sure. I mean, well, and and then it it also and it's an
3: interesting kind of thought experiment. And this happened a little bit during the. Uh, late D20 period too, right? Where you had every publisher under the sun was trying to put out a game that ran on the D20 engine, uh, but fit every genre you could imagine. And D&D was never really designed to run Westerns. Um, you know, <laughs> d was never really designed to run sci-fi. Um, so, you know, does your it's a big question it took me probably five years maybe even 10 years of actively doing design before i really started to ask myself in a meaningful fashion what does the action i'm asking a player to do here do to enhance their experience and if it doesn't enhance their experience why am i doing it right Um, you know, and by enhance the experience, I mean, specifically enhance the experience of that setting, of that feel, of that genre you're trying to convey. Um, you know, I don't necessarily need or want a, uh, you know, a a romance-driven mechanic in my Die Hard campaign, right? Um, I want to be able to, you know, throw terrorists out windows and, and, you know, have a machine gun, ho, 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 That's that's what the game should do. Um... But if I'm going to make a role-playing game based on the notebook, probably don't need a combat system. (laughs) You know, right? Like, like that's really about exploring the romantic relationship, you
0: know. So million dollar idea.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So I mean, you know, things along those lines, thinking about the design in that regard. And I realized we just kind of wandered off into this weird tangent. <laughs>
0: that's, that's what side quests are for, Travis. What, <laughs> side,
1: side quests are for that purpose. And uh, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I love anytime we can sit down with a, a, a creative mind uh, who loves the hobby. And that comes through in everything you've been speaking about tonight. Um, you know, a love of the hobby, a love of the game uh, and, and a love of the game of the game comes through as well, right? So, uh, you know, uh, I think that that's brilliant. And just talking about some of these things are great to edify my mind personally. Um, uh, as far as direction, like what are the types of things that I can do? What are the thing, concepts that I need to keep in mind as I design things? Uh, both from a, what kinds of, what are the next kind of characters I create as a player? What are the next kind of worlds I create as a storyteller? What are the next kind of adventures I write as a content creator? Uh, These conversations are essential to kind of enhancing your internal lexicon so you can do those things well. Right. And the other big
3: takeaway that I would put out for anybody who's listening to this is anytime myself or any other person who's been at this for more than 10 minutes starts, you know, blovating about their their thoughts on high level game design stuff you know take what you like and then ignore the rest just like any other game experience um you know uh look look at the parts where you think ah, oh, that dude's full of it doesn't know what he's talking about um then don't follow that advice but if things <laughs> work yeah if, if there's don't, something don't that struggle. resonates
0: yeah, yeah and don't, don't struggle against something that doesn't work right like that's like that's just that's fruitless
1: a perfect example of what you just talk, spoke about is this. Any American who has ever played Monopoly will, should know and realize that almost nobody in the United States of America plays Monopoly rules as writ. If you've, if you've ever done free parking where everybody puts their money in, you're not playing rules as writ. So <laughs> the idea of... Doing what works for your table is not unique to this hobby. It is.
2: Uno is the same way. You know, everybody has 7,000 house rules to Uno.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Yeah, you know, there are so many different things you could. Every game has so many different things you can do. I am convinced there are several of the games that are under the Uno label that exist simply because their house rules were rampant. And somebody said, time to cash this in. Right. Get some money on it. <laughs> Well, and
3: it's funny, too, because I think that once you remove – I I don't know enough about the history of games, like, as a species, but I suspect that once you remove – the exchange or the risk of goods from the game, i.e. once it's no longer gambling, I think everybody starts putting in house rules, <laughs> you know what I mean? Once you get away from, we all have to agree on how this works because there's money in the pot. <laughs> right? I think uh, every, you know, you get into, you know, everything from, I remember when we were kids playing Mousetrap and we had like house rules for how that worked and stuff. My, yeah, my it, we family had house
1: rules for life. Yeah, I mean, for life in there somewhere. Was, like,
2: wait, you, know, you mean the game?
1: Yeah, the game. <laughs> oh. and life in general. Hey, oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, if if it said Milton Bradley or Parker Brothers, we had a house rule. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's um, just how it works. So we are just about at time. Uh, uh, Glenn, Levanika, are there any other questions that you want to get to before we wrap up? I have one. Go ahead. Yep. All right.
2: So we started out talking about the Scarredlands, which and. All of our conversation has been amazing, but um, talking about a 5 V setting um, that's developed and effectively working off of a 200-year history, uh, so it's a little bit more on the young side as opposed to being as crazily fleshed out as the Forgotten Realms. If anybody else out there, if any of our listeners are intrigued as I am by that, and I know that we'll put it in the show notes too, but where can we find it? Where do they go to get the Scarred Lands Player's Handbook or the modules and other content that you all have put out?
3: So uh, there's a couple places uh, that I would recommend. One is obviously drivethroughrpg.com. If you uh, just look up Scarred Lands at drivethroughrpg.com, you'll find plenty of PDFs and print-on-demand books that are there. Um, we have a community content program called the Slurician Bolt, which is also hosted on Drive-Thru RPG, where you can create your own Scarred Lands content. Um, I recommend checking that out. There's a lot of really good uh, creators working in that space right now. We also do have our traditionally printed books available through Studio Two Publishing as well as Indie Press Revolution. So if you could Google either of those two, or I'm sure, like I guess there might be links in the show notes. I can send those to you if you need. Um, and uh, you can get uh, basically you can direct order the traditional printed if you want something that's a little bit, uh, you know, that's a little bit higher quality for a little bit more money uh to have on your shelf uh that's where i would recommend going or um go to your friendly local gaming store and ask them to stock starlands and let them know that they can get it through studio Two. um
0: we have we have mad love for our gaming store so thank you that's that's a great job yeah we love
2: we love that you throw in that local gaming store Bet we're we're right in there. Yeah, ready.
3: absolutely. I would love to see it on shelves everywhere. Um, and the more it winds up on shelves, the more we had to make to put on more shelves. So uh, definitely recommend checking it out if you want to get a good look at uh, Scarlands in action. Uh, I would recommend hitting up uh, Twitch.tv forward slash The Onyx Path, where we have a number of Scarland's actual plays, um, and I also have them on uh, my channel on Plastic Age Plays, so twitch.tv forward slash Plastic Age Plays. Uh, I run a couple myself. Um, and then if, uh, YouTube, if you're YouTube and you type in Scarred you'll find some actual plays as well. Um, some of those are a little more adult, especially given that we're, you know, some of the realities of the setting and just because we're a bunch of, you know, ribald sort of, you know, we, we work blue as they used to say back in the day. Um, you know, so uh, parental discretion is advised. Um, but yeah, uh, there's a number of ways to engage with the setting. And, and I, I hope that uh, we'll uh, hear from some of your listeners that they've checked it out and they've enjoyed
1: it. We will certainly encourage that. I did have a question that's kind of something that I think I'm going to start asking all of the content creators that we, that we end up interviewing and speaking with. Um, of all the products in your line, uh, because you have different subclasses and and newer elements to the five E framework, what would be your top three additions to the five five E framework that I would point uh, somebody questioning or asking about Scarred Lands to as a hallmark of 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 this game. Um... Boy, that's a good question, uh, and I and I apologize. I promised I wouldn't uh, blindside you, but I no, think I'm, <laughs>
3: no. It's just it's so hard to pick three. Um, if you want to look at like, I'll right, I'll I'll answer your question in two different ways. If you want to look at like a macro level, uh, I think the way that um, backgrounds are handled in Scarlands is very interesting because. Uh, instead of having like a background, you have a regional and a cultural background. Um, so, <laughs> like where you're from, but also like who you grew up around, those matter.
0: So, um, sorry, you have to understand. Liwanika has been asking for that in 5e since I've known him. <laughs> Like, like, for 20 years before 5e came out, he was like, this is what this needs. And every time a new book comes out that doesn't do it, he's disappointed. So you have just found a fan for life in Lee yeah, he, Winnie.
2: He, yeah, he just, like, did a big celebration. Yeah, uh, I love
0: uh,
1: it. I, uh, wow. Like, that's my, like, I am still trying to find a way to not break D&D Beyond so I can give people two backgrounds because I want to give them a regional background and their individual background and I want to design regional backgrounds for all the areas of my campaign world. So this is where you're from, and this is who you are, are two different elements. Uh, actually, quite similar to White Wolf, now that I think about that <laughs> in the context of our conversation. You oh, mean like a nature um, and
0: demeanor? So yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. A little bit, uh, yeah. yeah. to some extent, or some, some shade of that. Uh, brilliant. I didn't want to cut you off, so please keep going No, uh, by all means. And
3: uh, I, sometime off stream, I'll talk to you about the way I've uh, caressed D and beyond to work along with that, so that my players can use it when I'm running cardlines. Um, but uh, the other thing I would say is uh, the um, the the ritual, the true ritual additions to magic, um, and and just the magic in general, because the magic is designed to be super evocative of the setting. So we have spells. Uh, like Bloodstorm, where you uh, basically create this whirlwind of blood that blinds and burns the eyes of everybody in in the immediate vicinity. <laughs> things like, you know, um, there's a, a, a spell comes to mind called Escape the Bonds of Flesh, where you um, pull someone's skeleton out of their body. Um, you know, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> Stuff like that, you know, the,
2: the, the magic is just
1: super time. brutal. Um, that's awesome. And, and then, and, and, <laughs> am I strange, Travis? Because that was so cool. I want to hug you. That was not, no, right?
3: <laughs> no. I, I feel exactly the same way. Um, it's it, That's the type of stuff I love. And then uh, I would say our um the the playable races that we've introduced because um we've really tried to create um. Bases for these that are uh, unique, that are the type of th- types of things you don't see normally in D&D, and that, where possible, we're turning tropes on their ear. Um, you know, just to give you a direct example, with orcs in Skylands, uh, the orcs are, at first glance, just like you'd see orcs in any other world. They're big, they're scary, they're um, tough, they're, they have a reputation for being these brutal warriors. But in reality uh they fought in the divine war on the side of titans not because of any particular passion just because that's kind of the side they picked and when the divine war ended the orcs went all right that's fair enough then we surrender um and we would now like to uh, get along with everybody else so they're this people who have this rich cultural background that the whole rest of the world is largely ignorant of and now they are just starting to pour out into the world and share these things with them. You know, we have our own astrology. We have our own uh, stories. We each, we have a cultural norm where we tattoo the stars of the constellations that were above us when important life events have happened. And and sharing all these sort of, so like they're, they're often greeted with suspicion and disdain because they were such brutal warriors during the divine war but that's not their cultural identity. They just also happen to be good at fighting, (laughs) you know? And so now they're very interested. Most of them are very interested in, um, okay, fight's over. Uh, so now let's share culture.
0: Uh, I'm from South Boston. I understand that totally. (laughs) So
3: So those would be the three like macro level things. That's The micro level things I would say to look at, um, is, uh, well, I already named two very specifics is the, uh, you know, the, the spell escape the bonds of flesh. Our horn saw unicorn, I think, is a perfect emblem of the setting uh, because it's a cute unicorn on steroids frothing at the mouth with rabies with a serrated uh, horn. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, there's a picture, I think, from Dead Man's Rest where uh, 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 there's like a manticora, which is our cat folk, like impaled on a horn saw unicorn. And it's just, I love that picture the horn saw is just ramming them from behind and they're just laying their bed it's pretty dope um, we have a monster that I love it's one of my favorite monsters in any game ever um, that uh, is called the blood reaper and it's this nine foot tall uh, mantis like creature that has four arms but the lower arms are just scythe blades basically um, so it's just like this Living Queezer, I love that because it's, you know, it, it, it's the Relentless, it's the Terminator, but for fantasy. Um, and then I would say uh, checking out the Hollow Legionnaires as, as a, a, a people. Uh, the Hollow Legionnaires or the Ironbred, those are both two other races that are introduced in Skylands 5e that I think are presented in such a way that uh, they're not what you see in a normal DD campaign. The Hollow Legionnaires, there's some parallels to the Warforged. Um, but they're definitely a very different approach and the iron are, I, 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 love them because they were so, we've, we've really gotten to define them a lot in fifth edition. They were very loosely defined going into it. And we've found, uh, just some really cool space with building out their culture. Um, you know, there are people who also were Titan worshipers, uh, and the majority of their people are, are still Titan worshipers. So the iron bread have sort of run away from that and had to create a new culture from scratch. And so they have adopted things like polyamory as their norm. Uh, They have, they look at things from a culture perspective, from the perspective of the family and the family is the entire uh, group of people. So they don't really understand things like jealousy and possessiveness because uh, I want my brother, my sister, my my lover, my child to have what I have. We all share in this bounty, and I don't understand why. So, so things like you know uh, avarice or greed don't really register for them. <laughs> you know, and so playing that experience of like interacting with with cultures that are driven by treasure, you know, in a game that is at its core ostensibly driven by the acquisition of treasure, to have people who don't really value ownership. <laughs> i think it's fun but not in not like a kender like oh i'm stealing everything because i'm handling it kind of way it's literally just like oh you need that take it you know um i think that's kind of a cool element to introduce i realized yes. you asked for three and i gave you like
0: seven. <laughs> no that, i'm okay that's, with that because yeah that's were, okay
1: all of them were gold
0: yeah <laughs> like every I'm, one
1: of them was gold and i think I'm, that i appreciate that a lot
0: I'm I'm really looking forward to getting uh to getting the books from this uh, from the most recent Kickstarter. Um, we just started uh, an actual play series on our podcast, uh, so uh, you know we may uh we may be looking at this uh, for for one or two shot uh, down the down the road here. This sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like a really interesting setting. So, um, Thank yeah. You. Anyway, yeah. let me know, Travis, yeah, I will scream about it from the rooftops if you do Oh, anything. that'd be awesome. It, yeah. And uh, maybe we'll uh, play yeah. back on to go ahead and run the game. Okay, cuz that yeah, lets the that. 3
2: of us play at the same
0: table and that Exactly. Would be awesome. Yeah. So, let's let's, let's let's make something happen. happen. We'll, we'll talk. Okay. i love it. We'll, we'll definitely yeah, talk, we'll talk about that. Yeah. <sighs> imagine? Oh, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. Uh Travis, this has been an amazing time. Thank you so very much for uh, for responding to the uh, the email from somebody that you had never heard from uh, a couple months ago, and being willing to go ahead and come on here and talk uh, talk about your game. This has been uh, a tremendous amount of fun. I I hope that uh, I hope that this was as good for you as it was for oh, us tonight. Absolutely,
3: yeah. likewise, and thank you for having me. And uh, happy to come back anytime and, and uh, talk far longer than we had intended. Awesome, uh, spare <laughs> <That's, that's- laughs>
1: <laughs> and we've got some caressing of d beyond disgust as well. That's true. I'll, I'll, I'll,
0: I'll, 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 uh, I'll make sure to throw you his email address. Yeah. So, so. All right. Uh, well, thank you very much, Travis. We will have you back on again here at, at some point in the thank near future. Thank you for future. joining us. Uh, This has been so much tough this has been fabulous. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Great. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast.
2: And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys. And join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys.
1: If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays.
0: We'll feature our SideQuest series, where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.